The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. There was a single event in history that more than a quarter of the population on planet Earth witnessed on television live. Now, I want you just to think about that. Like, what event was so significant that more than 25% of the inhabitants of our planet watched it live on TV? Incredible moment. I mean, um, it was uh, maybe almost 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago, and it was a billion people watched it on television. It was a boxing match. I thought it would have been the moon landing. I don't know, maybe humans going to outer space. Like that might be something we'd be interested in. Almost double the amount of people watched this boxing match than watched the moon landing. I don't know what that says, but something. It was a boxing match. Um, One of the fighters was the greatest, Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali was going against someone, but the actually going into this, now Muhammad Ali had already won a gold medal. He had already at one point had the, uh, the title of um, the world champion. Um, he had already had all these things, already known as the greatest, but he went into this fight as the underdog. Because the man that he was fighting Muhammad Ali was about 32. The man he was fighting was a young man, 25. How could some young 25-year-old come in uh, expected to win? Well, it's because he had never lost. He was uh, feared. He had his, his punches where he was, he was uh, relentless. He was aggressive. He would go on the attack and he would land punches that were notorious. They were like sledgehammers. He'd break his opponent's jaws and their ribs. He once punched someone in the jaw, knocked him out so hard, he actually split the man's mouth guard in half. The man's name was George Foreman. Now some of you are like, wait, the grill guy? <laughs> He boxed too? Like, no way. It's true. He did box. Can you believe it? He did both. Anyway, George Foreman against Muhammad Ali. And here's why it was so tense, because Muhammad Ali had a rival named Joe Frazier. And a few years earlier, Joe Frazier took Muhammad Ali all 15 rounds and beat Muhammad Ali. Shortly after that, George Foreman faced off with Joe Frazier and knocked him down three times in round one, three times in round two, and then the referee stopped the match. It was a massacre, made short work of Joe Frazier. So what's going to happen with Muhammad Ali and, and George Foreman? Well, they, they put the, the match in what's now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, and they called it the Rumble in the Jungle one of the most famous boxing matches of all time. They went into the boxing match. Very quickly, Muhammad Ali realized this younger man, this, I mean, he was just aggressive. He was, had these, again, like sledgehammers he would drop on people. And so he devised a strategy that some look back and say it was suicide. 
He devised a strategy that's now known as the rope-a-dope. What he did is he backed against the ropes and leaned back and would just stay stationary and dodge as George Foreman is just punching with all he had. And then he would kind of wrap up and he'd start whispering things in George Foreman's ear. I thought I heard you could punch hard. Back, he's punching, he's landing these punches. And man, is that really all you got, George? Punching, punching. He's just unloading this on Muhammad Ali. George Foreman goes back, he says, there's one time I landed a punch on his body that's the hardest, according to George Foreman, the hardest I've ever connected with an opponent's body before. And he said, and I looked, and I, I see Muhammad Ali grimace, but then he had a look in his eye that told me, I could not hurt this man. And it started breaking George Foreman psychologically. And so he went even harder and harder and harder. And Muhammad Ali is just backing, backing up against the rope, dodging, dodging, absorbing these killer blows that every other opponent before him could not withstand. Round eight came around. By now, for a couple rounds, George Foreman's exhausted can barely throw these punches. He's like barely making contact. And Muhammad Ali, conserving his energy, just waits for the opening. And then like lightning comes alive and in one five-punch combination knocks George Foreman out, fights over. George Foreman goes back and would say, I wish I had never fought Muhammad Ali. See, Muhammad Ali did something. I mean, it's was considered crazy. They thought, they, they thought a strategy like that, absorbing that many punches up against the ropes, blow after blow after blow, I mean, that's suicide. I mean, this guy could literally kill someone. But Muhammad Ali was able to absorb what no one else before him could and eventually had victory. Now, I tell you that story. It's a story of victory. But it's a story of uniquely in sports history, like one of the greatest victory stories in sports history. But uniquely, it shows what it cost in this particular instance to win a victory. I mean, a lot had to be absorbed, a lot. And, and really, in a way that no one else before him had ever done, he had to absorb so much to be victorious. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this story as I was... Um, looking at this passage the last few weeks and just thinking about our own lives journey. And man, I think every single one of us, whether it's the current season that we're facing or just kind of in general, we are wanting victory. We want to make it through. We don't just want to survive it. We want to win. We want to do well. We want to, we want to achieve those goals. We want to achieve those accomplishments. But man, we know what life is like. It's not, life is not all dishing blows. I mean, you have to overcome and absorb a lot. And I just want to speak to those of you uh, in particular, this passage is something for every one of us, but in particular, there may be some of you that say, right now in this season, I feel back up against the ropes. In this season, I just don't know how many more blows I can take. Or in this season, I feel like I'm entering into another round, and I feel like my, my arms are dragging, like I just, I don't have the attack in me anymore. How do I find victory? I want to show you something this passage says, that it could not just change the season you're in, it might just change the course of your entire life. Not, not what I'm going to say, what this passage says. Open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want you to look at 
54. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Now he starts by talking about, hey, he's talking about victory, and he's specifically talking about a certain type of victory, which I think we could agree would be kind of the ultimate victory. It's death itself being, uh, being overcome in victory. And so he says when the, um, the mortal puts on immortality, he's talking about what is so often really kind of the punchline of all religious searching, life after death. He says there's, there's victory that has been won so that one day when we die, that we awaken in everlasting life. We, we awaken to heaven. We're saved. We go to what some people just call a better place. The Bible says so much more about where uh, we can spend eternity and what's offered to us. And he says, he says, he's talking about this victory. And then he says more specifically, he, he dials it in with a little bit of, of just technical language to talk about the pursuit of eternal life, the pursuit of heaven, the pursuit of immortality. And this might sound a little technical, but this is so profound, it might actually answer some questions you long have had when it comes to the, the religious space in your life or the spiritual space in your life. He says this, he says, sin is the sting of death. The sting of death is sin. Now, what does he mean by the sting of death is sin? Let's back up for a second and, and talk about this idea. What does the Bible say that sin is? Because it might not be what you expect it to say about what sin is. Uh, just a few days ago, my daughter came up to me and she said, um, Daddy, when she's nine, she says, what's your favorite flower? And I was thinking, you know, don't often think about that, but okay, what's my favorite flower? You know, this is very different than the conversations that I would have with my son, okay? My son, same day came up, dad, this green slime, it looks like snot. Look at it, dad, this is great. Like, that's the kind of conversation I have with my son. My daughter, daddy, what's your favorite flower? And so we started talking about flowers and we talked about, well, I like the hibiscus flower, you know, it's beautiful, it opens real big and all different colors. And oh yeah, what about roses? Oh, roses are great. And, and bougainvilleas, I love a bougainvillea a tree, especially when it's cut back and it's just blossoming everywhere. And we talked about several different flowers and, and uh, it, it makes me think about God's creation, how beautiful, how vibrant, how lively it can be. And when God first made all of creation all the way back in the garden, it just stretches the imagination of, man, when God first made everything, he made it so good, so beautiful. Man, Garden of Eden must have been blanketed with just the most uh, spellbinding flowers. I mean, just the most glorious birds must have been flying through there, the juiciest, tastiest fruit. I mean, when God made things, he made it good because God is the source. He's not neutral. God is the source of all life, all that's good, all that's valuable, all that's pleasurable. It all comes back flowing out from God. He looked at all of his creation and said, it's good. And then disobedience happened. Adam and Eve decided, I'm going to go my own way rather than God's way. I'm going to do my own thing. He said, don't eat this forbidden fruit, but I'm going to eat it. 
and they did their own thing and sin entered into the world. At its core, sin is essentially saying, I know God brings life. I know God is good. I know God is holy. I know God invented everything. But at its core, sin says, but I'm going to do my own thing. I know better. And that, according to the Bible, it brings destruction. It says death, sin is the sting of death. If you think about a humane death, it's quick. If you think about a painful death, it's long. It's like sin is slowly bringing death into our lives long before we're actually dead. It's the long sting that leads to death. It's that selfishness. I'm going to do my own thing that brings death, brings death to relationships. It's that selfishness that also makes me self-absorbed. It's that selfishness that makes me also envious. Why is that person not me? What's selfishness that makes me greedy and that greed kind of begins to destroy me, makes me never actually happy with what I have, but just constantly going, constantly going and climbing over people along the way. It's all of those things. When that lets loose in my life, that self-absorption, that, that self-centeredness, that I'm going to do things my way, it ends up destroying me before I'm actually destroyed. It says sin is the, the sting of death is sin. And then he says something that's really unexpected. He says, the power of sin is the law. Now, you've got to hang with me on this. These are maybe not categories we usually think of, but this is, this is a game changer. It, it's like this. Let me just put it very candidly. What, what is he saying by the power of sin is the law? Let me just put it very candidly. I, I know in my life, when I've witnessed people who are, um, would call themselves very dedicated Christians or very, very religious people, they're very dedicated Christians. I have noticed often those people are either some of the most extraordinary magnetic people, so full of joy and grace and forgiveness and generosity and self-sacrifice. There's certain people that would say that and you're like, I, I mean, what, what's different about you? Or often that same person, a different person, but says the same thing can often be someone whose life is cleaned up, but they're really dominated by being judgmental holier than thou, not really filled with a whole lot of joy and grace, not really filled a whole lot with forgiveness. And actually maybe, it, you know, if you live near one and live somewhere like that or work with someone like that, maybe filled with entitlement and there may be distance and you just kind of feel like looked down upon. Like it's, it's interesting how some people who are fervent Christians can be some of these people that are just the most magnetic. What is different about you? And sometimes can be the opposite, kind of like, wow, I just don't know that I know what to do with you. And, and they're maybe even a difficult person to be around. How can you have two people saying the same thing, but just so different in how it lives out. And maybe a lot of their life is cleaned up similarly, but just kind of the dynamic of their life and how they handle other people just seems so polar. It's right here in what Paul says right here. The power of sin is the law. What does that mean? The law, let's define it like this. The law is any, whenever I, however I answer this phrase, I know that I will be in heaven because I, whatever you fill in the blank, 
is the law in your life. The law is, I, or put it differently, the law is however you and I answer this question. Now hang with me on this. I will go to heaven as long as I fill in the blank. And however you fill in that blank, that is your law. For some is as long as I stay true to the religious tradition I was brought up in. I grew up Southern Baptist. I grew up Presbyterian. I grew up Catholic. You know, I went to Sunday school or I went to camp or I went to VBS or I was, went through religious education and I, I went, um, you know, I did my first communion, whatever it is, as long as I stay true to that heritage, I'll make it to heaven. That would be law. As long as I stay true to that, I'll, I'll go to heaven. God is, is good with me. Or maybe it's for others that say, no, it's not about heritage. It's more than that. It's got to be in my own life. So some would say, as, I will go to heaven as long as I am a good person. That rule, I've got, as long as I check off those boxes and I, I go through that list and I'm like, I'm kind to people. I'm not like that one coworker who, who's like talking bad about people behind their back. I'm for the good, good guys. I'm against the bad guys. And I just kind of check down that box. And as long as I'm a good person, then I know that I'll make to heaven. And it's this list of kind of external check boxes that make me good with God or going to heaven. He says, uh, or maybe it says, as long as I do the right, enough religious things, I go to church enough times, I pray enough times, I do these things, as long as I'm that religious person, or maybe I, I construct my own kind of spirituality and I take a little bit of this, a little bit of this, as long as I'm true to the, the, and fervent and passionate and authentic on the spirituality that I've created, then I'll be good and I'll go to a better place. And what Paul is saying is whatever that construct is, whatever that framework is that I've built, that as long as I accomplish that, I'll make it to heaven. He says that law is the power of sin. It's actually empowering sin in me. It's not fighting sin. It's not healing sin. It's empowering sin. You say, how is that? Because whatever that law is, is the victory I'm furiously trying to fight for and hold on to. Because as I'm, when I'm winning, I'm patting myself on the shoulder and what I'm actually doing, self-congratulating myself, which is just fueling pride, critical, a critical spirit, and kind of self-righteousness and holier than thou. When I'm losing, the only way I can make myself feel better is by looking around and saying, well, I'm better than them, and I'm better than them, and I'm better than them. See, the dynamic is there are some that take the words of Christ or take the Bible or take the Christian religion and they turn it into a law of checked boxes that as long as they follow all of those, they'll be good with God and they'll go to heaven. But what Paul says, and maybe they are saved, but they're constantly fighting for a victory, hoping for a victory, and never finding a victory. But what about those people that you come across? <laughs> Just so overflowing with joy just so at rest in who they are, just filled with grace and compassion and love and humility. And just, it's incredible to be around. And you're like, there's just something different about you. What about that person? It, it's this next verse. Look what he says in verse 57. But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those that are alive are those who realize the victory is not something they're still fighting for. It's something that has been given them by Jesus, fully accomplished by Jesus, and their life is dominated with a heart of thanksgiving that Jesus has already won the entire battle for them. What did Jesus do? Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth, and he perfectly fulfilled the law of God, perfectly fulfilled. He had the perfect life that you don't have and I don't have. He had the perfect life, and he, so he satisfied the law of God. He fulfilled it for us. Then he dies on a cross, and he pays for all the sin that you, and, you have and I have. He satisfied the law, fulfilled it for us. He pays for our sin on the cross and dies. And then overcomes death, raising on the third day. Now, think about that. Death overwhelms every living thing. There are some trees that can literally live a thousand, even two thousand years. There are some sharks that swim deep in the water that can live for four, five hundred years. But every living thing at some point gets overwhelmed by death. And, and every, at some point, death wins a victory over them. But one came who was so powerful that he overwhelmed death. It's like this. Jesus did what everyone else before him could not do. He absorbed death's mightiest blows and still won the victory. He did what no one could do before him and what no one, no one could do after him. And here's what this says. He won that victory for you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus enters into the ring on your behalf and wins that victory for you. And what Paul says is walk in that victory. He's won victory over the law for you. Now God looks at you and he sees you. Your righteousness is that of Christ. So he sees you and treats you as if you had the righteousness of Christ. He, he uh, won victory over our sin. He's completely paid for our sin, past, present, and future. He's brought victory into your life. He's letting loose victory in your life over sin. He's brought victory in your life over death. If you are in Jesus Christ, this is offered to you, and you can receive this. You can receive this today if you haven't. He's offering you victory over death itself. So one day when we die, we don't pay the penalty for our sins, but we live forever. He's brought victory in your life over death itself. But the victory church, it does not stop there. He's bringing victory in your life. He's your redeemer. So what is he doing? He's bringing victory. He's taking the broken shards of your life. Every one of us have lives that have broken pieces and he scoops up those broken pieces and he doesn't just make us feel better. 
He's a creator. He recreates them and he takes the, 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 the ashes and turn them into something beautiful. He takes the mourning and he turns it into a, head, a headdress of glory. He takes all of these broken pieces and he puts it t- together in a beautiful masterpiece mosaic that's even more beautiful than it was before. He redeems you and brings the victory in your life. He's your redeemer. He's your healer. He's speaking into your life. He knows the areas that are hurt and broken and he heals them. He heals them emotionally. He heals them mentally. He heals them spiritually. He's bringing you into healing physically either in this life or in the next. He's your healer. He's he's your king and your Lord and your God. He's actually, no matter what the broken pieces are in your life, he's taking those things and he's going to weave them into something good because all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's bringing victory over and over into your life. You're living a life of victory. It is guaranteed if you're in the person of Jesus Christ. Whatever brokenness, if you're like, I feel up against the ropes in this season. I feel like I don't know how many more blows I can take. Jesus is wanting to step into the ring and he's saying, let me do it. Let me handle it. And he will have victory. Here's the message, church. Sometimes we talk about, um, well, it's not a religion. And sometimes I've said this, I've heard other people say, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And there's value to that. That's important because it's not just like these check boxes. You're having a dynamic relationship with with God. But I actually think we need to take a step back because some people have misunderstood that phrase and say, well, I have a relationship with God. It's an estranged relationship. It's a distant relationship. Or I define the relationship, the relationship I want with God. But there's a very specific relationship that the Bible talks about. It is a rescue. It's not a religion we're talking about. It is a rescue. It is, the the Bible is not, hey, you're doing pretty good. Here's a couple extra tips on how to make it. It's saying, get out of the ring and let the champion fight your battles for you. It's not, hey, just do a couple more things and be godly and achieve heaven and live by your law. No, it's you. Jesus fulfilled the law. It's all the work Jesus did on your behalf. It is not a religion. It is a rescue, and we need to be rescued. It's more like this. Let me tell you. So this is how the, the Bible defines it. Can I, can I tell you a story for how the Bible defines our relationship with, with Jesus? It's like this. There was a a time when Jesus was walking through the city of Jericho, and there's crowds all around him. By this point, he was well-known. By this point, he was famous. By this point, it was not just Jesus. It was Jesus of Nazareth, worker of miracles. And he's been doing his ministry for three years. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die and raise on the third day, but he's passing through Jericho first. There's all these crowds and everyone's whispering, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth. You see Jesus of Nazareth. They're all joining in with Jesus of Nazareth. But there's one man who's sitting by the gate. He's a fixture there. He's there every day because he's blind. And this is the only way that he can make a living. He's got his cloak spread out in front of him. He's receiving the gold that, or the, the coins that people will spare him as he walks by. They've probably stopped even noticing him. He just kind of blends in. He's more a piece of furniture at the gate than an actual human being made in the image of God. They walk by him, kicking dust on him and splashing him. He doesn't even know who hit him or where his stuff went. He's just sitting there day after day after day. He's desperate. He has no other options but to stay there in his misery. But one day he hears someone's passing by. 
It's Jesus of Nazareth. And this man named Bartimaeus, how he calls out, he says, Jesus, son of David. Because it's not just the famous Jesus of Nazareth to him. It's Jesus, the promised one. Jesus, the descendant of David. Jesus, the Messiah. He's not just joining in with the crowd. No, he needs something else. He needs to be rescued. He needs to be saved. He needs his only single hope is this Jesus walking by. This is Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, his Messiah. And he calls out, Jesus, son of David. And they quiet him. Shh, don't bother him. He's, and they're, get out of my way. I'm trying to get closer to Jesus of Nazareth. And they're all gathering around Jesus and gathering around Jesus. And he calls out again, Jesus, son of David, son of David. And he keeps calling louder and louder. They keep, keep trying to quiet him, but he calls out even louder and even louder. And finally, Jesus hears him. And he says, call him over to me. And they say, okay, all right, take heart. He's calling you. And they pick him up. And here's what he does. He takes his cloak and he throws it to the side. That's the most valuable thing he owns, probably scattering the few coins in it. And as a blind man, like you don't just toss something that valuable to the side. How are you ever going to find it again at this gate within all these crowds? How would he, he flings it to the side. He casts it off. How would he find it? It's because he knew he'd come back seeing. He walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, what would you like me to do for you? That's pretty obvious, Jesus, don't you think? But he wants the whole crowd to hear this man's faith. They're all just around him for the buzz, the trend of it, the tradition of it. But this man's there to be rescued. He says, Jesus, let me recover my sight. I want to see. I don't want to live in this darkness anymore. And Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. And in an instant, his eyes opened up. The crowd must have gasped as he's taking in all the vibrant colors of his life, everything around him. And Jesus says, go your way. Now go do your thing, Bartimaeus. Live your life. Now you can see. And you know what Bartimaeus does? Does he run home and look at his parents whose face he hasn't seen in a long time? Or, or, or maybe a nephew that he heard, you know, has grown a foot since he last actually could see him. Does he run home and does he find his cloak? Does he pick up the coins? Does he go, go, go try and pay his debts? Does he try and make a life for himself? No, he has eyes for only one person. It says he, he goes his way and he follows Jesus. He walks out of the city to Jesus. He's going to walk to Jerusalem with Jesus. He's going to walk in the crowds on the way with Jesus. He's going to see Jesus die. He's going to see Jesus risen. He only has eyes for Jesus because he's been rescued. It's a rescue mission. That's your story, Christian. Jesus hasn't just given you a couple tips to live by. It's you're blind and now you can see. That's my story. He's not just tweaking my life so I can fulfill my goals. He has won the whole victory for my life. He's won my victory for eternity. He's won my victory over the sin that deserves God's wrath. It's won the victory over my attempt at trying to live the law. He's won a victory over all of my difficult circumstances. He's won the victory as our champion so that we can walk in that life. He's raised us like dead men into an army of living followers following after him, and he won the victory. Can we celebrate that good news, church?
He won the whole victory. So here's where this leaves us. Some of you, maybe you're here today and, you know, church is just about a, it's a tradition. Well, I, you know, feel weird not going to church on Easter. Like that's what I'm kind of supposed to do. And, and you know what? Don't just check the box. It's, it's, there's no box you can check. Or it's like, ah, I've kind of felt guilty because I used to go to church. I haven't in a while. So I kind of come back to, to check the box. It, it, it's not that. Jesus is calling you back to himself. And he's saying, yes, I want you part of the family of God. Yes, I want you part of my bride, the church. Yes, you are part of the body of Christ. But not because you're checking a box, but because you're clinging to Jesus. And because you want to be with a a group of other people who are also like, I was blind, but now I see. A group of of other beggars who finally found the bread of life and were clinging together and letting the Holy Spirit work through us in our lives together to draw us to the person of Jesus. And so wherever you're at, or maybe you say, look, I've never been a church person. I just, I've got a lot going on in my life and I'm just not sure how I feel about religion. Well, the Bible's sure on how it feels about religion. It says if you're relying on religion to save you, it can't. And actually it will empower sin in your life. It says what you need is Jesus. You need to be rescued by Jesus. I want to invite you, Christian, run back to Jesus. Come back into his family. Not because that's a box you can check, but because you're clinging to Jesus as the one who saves you. And for the person who doesn't know Jesus, put your faith in Jesus today. And for you, Christian, who's back up against the ropes and don't know how many more blows you can take, you have to believe Jesus is going to win the battle for you. Let's pray. Can you identify yourself in one of those three categories? Are you the Christian that is finding themselves back up against the ropes? Can I remind you of the victory he unlocked when he rose from the grave? That moment means it guarantees a happy ending over your life. He will work all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will work it together. He will win. Maybe you're a Christian and it's time to join back in the family of Christ. It's time to come back and be part of the body. It's time to not make this something that you just check off every a couple times a year. It's come be a part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ who's clinging to Jesus. Would you come join us next week? Let's just journey together. Just take another step clinging to Jesus. But there's some of you who've just never said, you know what? It's not what I do. It's what Jesus did to win the victory. I've been having my, my faith and just kind of a wish that I'll go to a better place. Or I've just been trying to live out whatever my religion is, whatever my spirituality is and putting my faith in that. But I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who saved me. He rescued me. I can't, I'm not just getting tips to rescue myself. Jesus rescued me. And I want to put my faith in Jesus so that I know for sure that I am saved. 
And so here's what I want to offer this as an invitation to you. No one's looking around. Everyone's heads are bowed. Eyes are closed. If that's you, you say, today is my day. I am putting my faith in nothing else but Jesus to save me so that I know I will spend an eternity in heaven living a, and, and living a life of victory. Today is the day I'm putting my faith in Jesus to rescue me. Here's what I want to invite you to do. Just No one's looking around. Just slip your hand in the air and put it back down. We want to celebrate that. Amen. Praise God. Anybody else? You say, today's the day I'm putting my faith in Jesus. Praise God. Is that you? It's not about getting more religion in your life. It's running after Jesus. You say, today I want to be rescued by Jesus Christ. Maybe you're sitting at Cooper City. Just slip your hand up in the air. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're sitting here. Just say, today's the day I want to put my faith in Jesus. Amen. Amen. Those of you who are ready to take that step, I'm gonna lead you in a silent prayer. Just say this to Jesus. Say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. You did all the work. You saved me from my sin. You saved me from death. And now I will cling to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, can we celebrate there were those that were brought from death to life today. You put your faith in Jesus. Because of the work that he did, you will live for eternity. Praise God. Hey, if that was you, here's what we want to invite you to do. If you put your faith in Jesus, I want you to grab your phone. Maybe you're watching online or you're sitting here. Go to cityrev.org slash faith. The reason we're inviting you to do that, we're going to mail you a Bible. We're going to send you a Bible as our gift to celebrate with you. We also, out of guest services, we have a Bible put in your hands today if you'd rather do that. But let us just bless you with that to celebrate with you. Church, we are going to close with a song, a reminder of who you are. We were people that were dead in our sins, but as Jesus rose from the grave, he rose us into a mighty army carrying the name of Jesus out into our world, out into our city. That is who we are. We have come to life in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me as we celebrate Thanks that together? For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.